2: Good and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa giving you news from an African perspective. Broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequencies 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Amanda Machaga. With me on the show is Joala Netulo and Ned Ochemane as well as Wisani Matebula. Top stories on Africa Digest. The General Secretary of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has begun his four-day visit to the Central African Republic. In economics, rather in sport, top Spanish athlete and a champion arrested for doping. But first, here's Jolani with your news.
3: Thank you, Amanda. Good afternoon. This week's presidential election rerun in Kenya has implications not only for the country but also much of the continent. Lawyers for the Kenyan Electoral Commission say the planned rerun of the presidential elections will go ahead on Thursday after not enough Supreme Court judges attended a special hearing. The BBC's Tommy Oladipo reports.
0: Normally, out of the seven Supreme Court judges, you need at least five of them to be present. But today, only two showed up. One of them, just last night, her vehicle was attacked and one of her aides was shot. Another one is believed to be receiving medical treatment. Two cannot come. We don't know why that is. One is out of town and could not get a flight back into Nairobi. So the Chief Justice said um, on that basis, they could not meet and they could not hear this case. And so the elections will go ahead.
3: Meanwhile, a lawyer for the opposition says the absence of judges for the hearing was evidence of intimidation. He says it would be illegal and unconstitutional for the Electoral Commission to go ahead with the election. President Uhuru Kenyatta has called for the vote to take place as scheduled. The main opposition candidate, Raila Odinga, is boycotting the rerun. His supporters in the west of the country have taken to the streets in protest at the failure of the Supreme Court to meet. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley says Ethiopia must give its youth a voice and act on human rights after the Horn of African Nation lifted a state of emergency following anti-government protests. Haley met Ethiopia's Prime Minister Haile Miriam De as part of a three-nation tour of Africa. Ntakwana Ngadani reports.
4: Ambassador Haley says her talks with Ethiopia centered on human rights and the importance of Ethiopian youth being given a voice. In August, Ethiopia lifted a 10-month state of emergency after anti-government protests in 2015-16 and now similar protests are being planned in the country's largest state of Oromia. International rights groups have accused Addis Ababa of being unnecessarily heavy-handed in dealing with protesters and political opponents.
3: West African leaders have called on the Togolese government and the opposition to sit down for talks as violence increases in the West African country. At least 16 people have been killed and scores more injured in anti-government protests that have seen hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets across the country. More marches have been planned next month. A coalition of 14 opposition parties want a SIGBE to stab down and a limit of two five-year terms introduced for presidents. They also want two round election processes rather than the current one. Uh, Ngaksigbe has won three elections since taking power in 2005 after the death of his father who ruled Togo nearly for, for, rather for nearly 50 years. And finally, members of the Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition arrested in the southeastern city of Lubumbashi for allegedly assaulting President Joseph Kabila have been released. The releases follow diplomatic pressure in the form of a joint statement from from European Union officials, the United Nations diplomats from the U.S., Swiss and Canadian missions to the country, expressing concern at restrictions on opposition gatherings. The statement called on the government to let gatherings by civil groups and the opposition proceed unhindered, while urging such groups to ensure that their meetings were peaceful and respected the law. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Toulon.
2: It's 1706 Central African Time, you listen to Africa Digest. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has begun his four-day visit to the Central African Republic where sectarian violence has spread in recent months. This is Guterres' first visit to any UN peacekeeping mission since he took office in January this year. Guterres' trip to the CAR comes at a delicate time for the United Nations as the world body comes under pressure from the United States President Donald Trump to cut spending including on some peacekeeping missions known as MINUSCA. The United Nations missions mandate in the Central African Republic which expires next month is due to be renewed and Guterres is looking for reinforcements. Kumberu Munzerere reports.
5: Well this visit is a very important one. It's the first trip of the Secretary General to to a UN uh, peacekeeping mission and he has chosen Central African Republic because of the humanitarian challenge, because of the security challenge. We have uh, a mission um, force and a mandate which is supposed to be renewed in uh, November. So there is a very high expectation in order to see how to um, put an end to the crisis and uh, how to do it through dialogue because it's our main message. Uh, we cannot uh, undertake a war. We are not here to, to fight a war. We are here to help um, bring peace. And this is the message uh, the Secretary General will, will bring. But at the same time, he will uh, also pay tribute to uh, Central African um, victims of violence, but also the UN peacekeepers who lost uh, their lives. And uh, even last week, we had two injured uh, peacekeepers following attacks by anti um, in the south, in the south of Central African Republic. Do you
6: think the mandate of the peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic will be renewed come next month?
5: For sure it, it will be renewed uh, in, in, in its reports, uh, namely the increase 900 additional force to help protect population. For the entire community, the entire the international community, Central African Republic must be supported. From a humanitarian point of view, but also security-wise, because it's at the heart of, of, of the continent, and in uh, such unstable stable area, uh, we cannot afford such things uh, as they are. We have the force. We are using force. The peacekeepers are using force uh, when it comes to protect population, but um, the UN calls for a political process.
6: Who else is the Secretary General going to meet apart from the peacekeepers uh, on the ground, uh, Mr. Monteiro?
5: Of course, he'll have two meetings with the President of the Republic. One including uh, during a meeting on DDR, um, demobilization, disarmament and reintegration, which is extremely important. He will be meeting with political parties, civil society organizations, uh, religious leaders. But also, he will travel to Bangassou in the south of Central African Republic. It's the place recently marked by huge violence uh, caused by anti-balaka militias. The place where we lost. Eight peacekeepers uh, since May and it's a way to tell African Central African people he cares about Central Africa this is the reason he's traveling to to the country
6: Now, the United Nations uh, took over from the African Union's MISCA on uh, September 15 2014 creating what is now known as a MINUSCA now it has often been criticized by Central African authorities for its lack of of reactivity now the peacekeepers have also on several occasions been accused of uh, sex crimes uh, resulting in several hundred of them uh, being sent home this is a serious indictment uh, which has surely dented the image of uh, the mission has it not uh, mr. Montero
5: with respect To the partnership with the government, uh, it's um, it's very strong. The um, government backs MINUSCA uh, working in in the country. Um, It's owing to our presence that security is being provided. Of course, we have some uh, uh, limitations, and we try to address to address them on the SCA issue. It's part of our role, right? It's part of uh, the Secretary General's zero-tolerance policy, and we are doing everything to uh, help address this this issue with training. But also it's uh, a work that we try to involve communities to help us address this courage, this, this, um, mm-hmm. and also the role of um, member states, uh, particularly uh, troop-contributing con- uh, countries, police contributing countries is extremely important we know that uh, um, it can hurt our image that we are doing everything to to do our work based on the UN uh, core values which is respect for the people we came to serve
6: what are some of the challenges that your peacekeepers are facing on the ground as uh, they carry out their mandate of uh, protecting civilians in the Central African Republic
5: well we have um, design groups um, throughout the country controlling uh, natural resources. We have lack of education. We have uh, rumors. We have also uh, geographical challenges. For example, currently in, in the in the south of, of, of the country, we cannot uh, move from Obo to Xenio, which is also an area affected by, by um, insecurity due to the rainy season, due to the state of, of the road. We cannot undergo patrols, and it's extremely important. And another challenge at security level is that multiplication of, of hotspots, which means that we cannot uh, stay in one place. Sometimes we are obliged to leave uh, a, a, an area uh, and move to another area, which creates a uh, wide space for, for for armed groups. That's why we try to work with the community, and we repeat the same thing. The involvement of all Central Africans is, is, is crucial at this process. We here we are here too to support them.
2: Human rights groups from South Africa and around the world have called on the Tanzanian government to release their colleagues who are being held in detention in that country. Lawyers and activists working for social justice, non-governmental organizations, Initiative for Strategic Litigation in Africa, and Community Health Education Services and Advocacy were arrested for allegedly promoting homosexuality, but they have not yet been formally charged, despite intense talks with the Tanzanian police to release the group. The group was in the country preparing for a court battle aimed at forcing the government to give better health services to their citizens. Matilda Laseco from the Initiative for Strategic Litigation in Africa has more.
7: As an organization, what we, we do is offer legal and technical support to lawyers on the continent who are looking to bring human rights cases um, against state where there has been a violation of human rights. So um, it's in this regard that my colleagues were meeting with the group in Tanzania. Um, As members of CHESA and some few lawyers from Tanzania, they had approached us to say that they're looking to file a suit against Tanzania um, to challenge a decision taken by government a few months back um, to, one, impose a ban on the importation of water-based lubricants, and two, um, close what they call drop-in centers. So the drop-in centers provide um, health-related services, um, particularly services to people who are infected and affected by HIV and AIDS.
6: Now there are conflicting reports about what your colleagues were doing in Tanzania when they were arrested. Uh, now the Tanzanian authorities are accusing them of promoting homosexuality. Talk to us about the purpose of their visit. What were they doing at the time of their arrest?
7: The allegation that they were promoting homosexuality came about um, when the police com- commissioner, I think he is, uh, held a press conference in, in Dar es Salaam. Sure. The day, that was on the Wednesday last week. And in that press conference, he made the allegation that the 13 are being detained for promoting homosexuality. And among the 13 was um, the hotel manager who provided rooms for the activities. The language that was was used in that that the language that's reported as having been used in that press conference um, was intended to create the impression that that my colleagues and the other participants were engaging in you know homosexual conduct. In fact, what is criminalised in Tanzania is gay sex. So, but there's actually no offence of promoting homosexuality. Uh, but that uh, that is that is as it is. My colleagues, however, were not in the hotel doing what they are accused of doing. As I've explained, we were there to have the consultation with the group. Um, we wanted to gather more more information, more evidence to help them develop the case that they sought to bring against the state. I mean, as the lawyers, you can tell them these are the international law obligations that have to be met by your state in terms of providing these services, um, but to help them develop a good, strong case that would be brought before the domestic courts or any regional or international human rights body, you have to look at what the, the, the facts on the ground are how those decisions by the state actually impact on the population and then when you relate that to the international law obligations you can build a case around it.
6: Now what has been the response of the Tanzanian government with regards to your calls for these detainees to be released?
7: Well we have not received any correspondence from the Tanzanian government with regards to the different um, interventions that are being staged around the world. There's various petitions, various letters calling for action that are being sent to Tanzanian embassies from um, our civil society partners and individuals all over the world. Um, in addition to that we've we had the picket yesterday in Pretoria at the High Commission but despite all those efforts there's been no formal response from the state uh, the only word that we get from them is through the police investigating the case and that we are informed through our the local council that's working with 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 my colleagues that they persist to say that they are continuing their investigations
6: now what will be your next course of action matilda if uh, they continue to remain in detention what will you do
7: well, what we are working on now is uh, bringing an urgent application before the High Court, uh, what we would call a habeas corpus application, um, in terms of which we would be seeking an order um, that the police must present the detainees before a judge, the judge who will grant the order, and the police must explain if the, there are charges to be brought against the detainees, and if there are no charges, they need to explain why they continue to hold them in unlawful detention.
2: And that's Matilda Laseko from the Initiative for Strategic Litigation in Africa talking to Kumero Munzerere.
8: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African
9: perspective...
3: Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using silozi Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French, and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalu and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective.
6: Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
9: Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700 hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700 hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective.
2: It's 1720 Central African Time. You listen to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we're bringing you news from an African perspective. As October month focuses on food security and the eradication of poverty, we talk to agricultural experts about small alternative ways of farming in addressing food security. There's an alternative agricultural method called aquaponics, which uses farming space intelligently and uses fish farming as well as soilless crop production. Now, for more insight on this, we are now joined on the line by Unati Sishata, Programme Director for Health in Action South Africa at the Inmate Partnerships for Children. Good evening and welcome to Channel Africa.
8: Yes, good evening and uh, thank you for inviting us to your show and uh, good afternoon also to the listeners at home.
2: What is aquaponics and how does it work?
8: Well, uh, aquaponics is actually a combination of two technologies. One is aquaculture meaning that you are able to grow your fish. And then the other one is... um
2: Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa... And our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners
4: from around the world.
10: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa.
3: Reporting for Channel Africa. I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For
10: Channel
9: Africa,
6: I am Kumbara Mnjorele in Johannesburg. Channel Africa,
9: Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze.
0: Reporting for Channel Africa
9: from Zambia,
0: I am Hilda Kekelua. Channel Africa, bringing you the African
3: perspective.
2: Well, apologies for that technical glitch there. We got cut off as we're talking to Unati Sittlatla, But he's back, we have him. He's the Program Director for Health in Action South Africa at the Inmate Partnerships for Children. So we're talking about aquaponics and how does it work. Uh, Unati, can you please take us uh, through aquaponics?
8: Yes, I was explaining, Amanda, that aquaponics is actually a combination of two technologies. One is aquaculture, meaning that you are able to grow your fish as a source of nutrients for your plants. And then the second technology is hydroponics, uh, meaning that you are able to grow your vegetables without using soil as a medium. So the combination of these two technologies, it forms what we refer to as aquaponics. It's actually not a new technology. It has been there for a while, and what we have done as an organization is to simplify it uh, so that uh, rural communities and ordinary citizens can be able to start aquaponics either in their backyard gardens or whether at schools or for community projects.
2: Now Unati, is it possible to use aquaponics as a sustainable alternative to traditional farming in South Africa?
8: It is, it is actually because um, in its design the system is actually responding to a number of issues uh, including climate change. We have a problem now in South Africa because we are beginning to feel uh, the impact of climate change there is less and less rain. There is drought everywhere, and the system itself it does uh, respond to such challenges because it's actually using probably ninety percent less water, uh, and also in terms of the growth of your plants, it actually they actually grow very quick uh, when you compare to your traditional agriculture. We in some of the systems that we have built as an organization, within three days of planting your seeds, you are able to see germination. But if you compare that to your traditional agriculture, you are able to experience your generation probably even after seven days if you are lucky. So the system itself, it is something that can be able to be used by communities to sustain their food security needs.
2: Now, people tend to stick to, uh, you know, uh, proven old traditional ways of doing things. Do you think that it will be easily um, acceptable?
8: Well, uh, with education, Amanda, with education and more information sharing, uh, this is something that can be acceptable. We have been doing this for the past uh, 10 years as an organization, and what we are doing actually with the program that is funded uh, through partnerships with uh, Mondelez Foundation, we are actually starting spreading the system from primary schools that uh, we are teaching kids in primary schools on other alternative methods of uh, uh, growing food, including aquaponics. And this is something that really really generates a lot of interest from our young kids at schools. So it's something that we really uh, are beginning to reap some uh, 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 positive returns as we are engaging more communities around the use of the system.
2: And can you tell us about some of the projects uh, that INMED uh, is, is currently carrying out um, to empower women and children?
8: We have been very fortunate. Probably about two years ago, we started a partnership uh, with the Mondelez Foundation. And as part of this uh, partnership, we've got a program that we refer to it as the Health and Action Program. And one of the goals of the program is to improve access to fresh food for young uh, kids in schools. It's actually targeting probably about 120 schools that are benefiting from the program both in Johannesburg as well as also in Port Elizabeth. Now, as part of that project, we also do have aquaponics uh, that we have developed both in Johannesburg as well as also in the Eastern Cape in Port Elizabeth. And all the produce that is coming from these aquaponics units is actually used uh, to support Children, as well as also to augment the school feeding program in schools. We have also other programs that we are doing for community projects uh, for income generations uh, that are also focusing on aquaponics. So at the moment we are active in about six provinces uh, in South Africa and really the target is to reach as many people as we can so that we can make our mark in terms of uh, improving food security in this country.
2: Well, thank you very much, Unati, for that insight and for your time, indeed.
8: Thank you so much.
2: That's uh, Unati Sikhala, Programme Director for Health in Action South Africa at the Inmate Partnerships for Children.
9: Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700 Hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700 Hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective.
2: 1728 Central African Time, time for us to cross over to Jolane Tulo, who has our news headlines.
3: Thank you, Amanda. Making headlines this week's presidential election rerun in Kenya has implications not only for the country, but also for much of the continent. Lawyers for the Kenyan Electoral Commission say the planned rerun of the presidential election will go ahead on Thursday. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley says Ethiopia must give its youth a voice and act on human rights after the North, the horn of African nation lifted a state of emergency following anti-government protests. And finally, West African leaders have called on Togolese on the Togolese government and the opposition to sit down for talks as violence increases in the West African country. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo.
2: Thank you, Cholani. In the latest action to stop homosexuality in Africa last week, two South Africans were held and interrogated by Tanzanian police in the capital Dar es Salaam for allegedly promoting homosexuality. They are yet to be charged. News reports state that the two were part of a group of 12 men, including a Ugandan and nine Tanzanians, who were arrested at a hotel. The East African country is not the only one to impose harsh laws against the LGBT group. In Uganda, homosexual activity between men or women is punishable by life imprisonment, and in Sudan offenders can face as many as 100 lashes to life imprisonment. Are there real risks with being gay, or should governments just allow people to choose how they want to live their lives? To help us find an answer to this question, we have Juliet Mpande, Communications and Media Advocacy Manager at Amsha, and Niela Goshal, Researcher in the LGBT Rights Division at Human Rights Watch.
11: AMSHA is an organization that has, it's a global, it's um, an African coalition that uh, works out of, that has members in 15 countries and 20 organizations are members of AMSHA. And one of those members is actually Chesa, which is um, based in Tanzania. And one of the people who were arrested and detained is, um, is a board member for the African mental Sexual Health and Rights, as well as uh, he's the, the director of Chesa, which is a member of AMSHA but I also want to speak to the fact that um, uh, the two South Africans who are held, actually lawyers, who are in the process of um, working with Chessa to come up with, uh, to build a case around access to justice in a Tanzanian court. Mm. Uh, so why now, why the countdown in Tanzania? I mean, having worked across the continent uh, with African men for sexual health and rights and being part of the global, uh, the African uh, regional movement, Uh, We find these things are very, the patterns are usually common. Uh, The LGBTI community or individuals who have a particular sexual orientation and gender identity are usually used as scapegoats by African countries to try and deflect from real issues. So if you look at Tanzania right now, there are a myriad of issues that are happening in that country. Um, There's a calm down on... um, basic freedoms amongst the citizenry, Um, you have arbitrary decisions that are being made by the government to shut down on um, provision of health services that they may not agree with. And oftentimes you find that when governments become unpopular or they make unpopular decisions, then they begin to use homosexuality or anti-LGBTI legislation or policy decisions as a deflection uh, from being held
9: accountable. Your thoughts there, Nila, in terms of why it's so rough and just the uh, cultural taboos and also what uh, Juliet is highlighting, that it's not always from a community level, but uh, sometimes it reaches a government level where uh, there are government views that uh, being a gay or lesbian is uh, not uh, African. Where government politicized
12: issues of sexual orientation and gender identity And they attempt to rile up people, uh, the general public, when they need to find a scapegoat. This is what we've seen in Uganda around the passage of the Ender Homosexuality Act. We saw the same thing in Nigeria around the passage of the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act. And we're seeing it right now in Egypt and in Tanzania. These are governments that are embattled by allegations of corruption, by ineffectiveness, by security problems or simply by failing to deliver on their promises to bring development to the public. And we generally see as a rule that whenever a government is feel in battle in that way, they try to find someone to pick on. Um, and unfortunately, LBTI people often turn out to be that scapegoat. So the government says, look, we're effective. We're doing something. We're harassing these people. We're rounding them up. And this proves that we care about the public, about upholding moral values. And, of course, um, you know, it's just a projection. It's a way to get the public to not pay attention to to the other scandals so and effectiveness mm. um, and the problems of governance that are happening. So I think that um, people in every country, people in every continent, have different reactions to diversity of all kinds. Um, there are some cases where people struggle more to accept certain forms of diversity, and others, but generally, um, as Julia was said, people in Africa and elsewhere have historically been ready to embrace diversity. As long as no one is doing harm to the community, they are an accepted and productive member of the community. And I think unfortunately it's, uh, it's politics that is uh, moving things away from that view and a result of this kind of politics is that people are pushed into the shadows, yeah. pushed underground, and they're prevented from being the productive citizens that would be beneficial um, to all
2: of us here on the continent. That's a researcher in the LGBT rights division at Human Rights Watch near Laguashal, and you also heard from Juliet Mpande Communications and Media Advocacy Manager at ASHMA, that we're speaking to Benjamin Mushadam. The summit at Niamey, capital of Niger Republic, was in furtherance of the proposed plan to implement the Protocol of Common Monetary Policy, which translates to a single currency for the ECOWAS member nations. The desire was first muted about 30 years ago when the regional organization began steps to harmonize its economic development strategies for faster growth and integration. Though there are recorded and evident successes in areas like free movement of people, goods and services, the Monetary Union has not seen the light of the day because of a number of issues. The Director-General of the Lagos Chambers of Commerce and Industry, Muda Yusuf, says the timing is not ripe for such unification of currencies to materialize because of inherent regional issues. Collins Atohengbe reports.
10: The summit in Niamey, capital of Niger Republic, was in furtherance of the proposed plan to implement the Protocol of Common Monetary Policy, which translates to a single currency for ECOWAS member nations. The desire was first muted about 30 years ago when the regional organization began steps to harmonize its economic development strategies for faster growth and integration. Though there are recorded and evident success in areas like free movement of people, goods and services, the Monetary Union has not seen the light of the day because of a number of issues. The Director-General of the Lagos Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Muda Yusuf, says the timing is not right for such unification of currencies to materialize because of inherent regional issues.
13: The merit or otherwise of it is not being debated. What is being put forward is the timing of the adoption of the single currency. You know, for you to have a sustainable monetary union, you have what you call the customs union, which is the higher level of integration. You trade among yourselves, you reduce the internal barriers, and you have a common external tariff. That is where we are now. So the next step is what you call the monetary union, where you have a single currency. The francophone countries already have a common currency, which is the CFA. is linked to the euro the key issue about monetary union or single currency has to do more with the anglophone west african countries beyond the monetary union you now have the political union where you have a common currency and the same government
10: if the time is not ripe after three decades of deliberations and roadmap proposals what are the challenges which inhibits the formalization of the monetary policy muda yusuf says The method requires the implementation of deliberate economic measures by member nations such that ECOWAS can evolve into making its dream a reality.
13: For you to have a sustainable monetary union, there are certain criteria that must be met. That with proper alignment between the countries along the lines of their monetary policy. Most of their uh, macroeconomic fundamentals are very weak. For example, one of the criteria is that you must have single-digit inflation. How many countries in the West African sub-region have a single-digit inflation? Even in Nigeria, our inflation is well over 15% as we speak. Fiscal deficit to GDP ratio should not be more than 4%. Many of the countries in the West African sub-region has exceeded that by far. The external results must exceed at least three months of imports. And the uh, CBM financing of deficit must also not exceed 10% of uh, the total revenue.
10: In 2013, Nigeria and Ghana were mandated to spearhead the campaign for the actualization of the policy. But then, even the Ghanaian president, Nana Akufo-Addo, says the dream is still foggy because of the realities on the ground.
13: We are committed to introducing a common currency, the eco. But so far, there's still no sign that this will become reality. But unless we resolve the problems that we face, we cannot meaningfully embark upon the industrialization process. That is critical to our ability to transform our economy. Because
10: of the existence of these problems, it has become difficult to chart the expected path. Where there is a will, there is a way, so goes the saying. But it will appear that this is a case of the spirit willing and the body is weak. The Director General of Lagos Chamber of Commerce, Muda Yusuf, once again says the head of the snake must go first so that people can cross the road to a safer spot for the implementation of the single monetary policy and currency.
13: So all these critical criteria that needs to be met, most of these countries have not met those criteria. Mm -hmm. So when you have such conditions in many of the countries, it doesn't make sense, and it is also not advisable for you now to jump between a monetary you or a single currency. If you do that, it will create more complications. So it is better for us to remain the way we are and gradually sort out these very important macroeconomic issues before we move forward.
10: The summit may not have succeeded in reaching the goals of making it work as proposed, but ECOWAS has an idea of what it should be working towards. For instance, a Nigerian leader, President Mohamed Buhari told his colleagues that ECOWAS should tread softly and not rush into a single currency without clearing the hurdles and urging that the examples of what European Union is grappling with should be something to learn from. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins, Nosa Atohenwe for Channel Africa News.
2: A piece of South Africa's heritage that should be in the country's governmental archives is on sale in one of Europe's leading autograph and manuscript auction houses. This is a handwritten letter by Black Consciousness Movement founder Steve Beagle on 29 October 1973, listed in UK Auction House International Autograph Auctions Catalog. Beagle, an anti-apartheid activist and writer, was killed in Pretoria in 1977. For more on this issue, here's Kwan Handik of the South African Heritage Resource Agency.
14: First of all, it's not necessarily a problem to have historical artifacts in private hands. The the issue comes in when objects such as that are, are exported, and then the National Heritage Resources Act mandates that Any object deemed to be a heritage object requires a permit issued by SARA, and then we can either, you know, allow the export or not. The thing that concerns us specifically with this um, particular letter is that this was written directly to the magistrate in King Williamstown, Mm. um, and as such the document should have been in the judicial archives and if it was deaccessioned it would have gone to the archives as well so the fact that this document which is clearly a, you know property of South African government has somehow made it into private hands and we are not sure when or how had this document made it to the UK
1: and can we know more about the contents of this letter what exactly was it addressing
14: Sure. So the letter was written by Steve Beaker to the magistrate in order to request permission to visit his wife at the hospital where she was working. Um, And this was because in March of that year, the apartheid government had issued a banning order against Steve Beaker, which meant that he, in order to leave the magisterial district, he would have had to apply with the magistrate for permission. And I think this is perhaps particularly poignant in the fact that it was under that same banning order under which he was arrested in 77.
1: And in terms of this discovery of the auctioning of the letter, how did it come about? Who blew the whistle, so to speak, to say this letter, um, a very significant piece of South African heritage, will be auctioned in the UK?
14: Well, what we've been led to believe is that a Johannesburg-based business consultant, Thomas Winslow, was the first one who who identified this object for auction and then notified various parties who then forwarded that information to us and then we, we then followed up. So we were first notified on the 19th of October, so that was last week, Thursday, and on the Friday we had already contacted the auction house and requested for them to hold the auction off in order for us to ascertain more information.
1: For clarity, so are you saying that this letter, even though it's not known, who exported it, it was done so illegally?
14: That's hard to say. I mean, the issue of the export is a bit finicky because it depends on, you know, when it was actually exported and the date at which the National Heritage Resources Act became active, which was in 2000. Our primary concern at this point is is that the fact that this was a document belonging to the magistrate and to South Africa, and how that got to be in private hands.
1: Now, are there any steps taken to prevent this auctioning from taking place?
14: We are currently pursuing various uh, different options. I don't really want to say which, what exactly we're going to be doing um, mm-hmm. because we're still waiting for a bit more information, but we are following up and doing whatever we can.
1: And how much is it going for and is it worth that price? The asking price, um, if I can find it, I think it was about
14: £3,000, so it's about 50,000 rand, 30 to 50,000 rand. The price, I mean, it's very difficult to put a price onto something mm. as important as this, but there have been Other letters in the past that we were identified that went for about 20000 or so.
1: Speaking of other letters, it is reported that this is not the first letter of Steve Biku to be auctioned. Tell us more about this first auctioning.
14: The other auction took place on eBay on the 21st of October, so we don't think that this was done in the UK, but we endeavored to have that one stopped as well between us and also the Steve Beaker Foundation, and we were unable to um, prevent that auction, and we subsequently found out that it had actually been sold.
1: And lastly, just to conclude our conversation, let's reflect on the role of the South African Heritage Resource Agency in preserving the country's heritage, and what are some of the challenges faced in the process?
14: Well, to begin with, I mean, the South African Heritage Resources Agency is mandated to identify, assess, conserve, manage, protect and promote South African heritage resources in terms of the National Heritage Resources Act. So in in general terms, that could be anything from, you know, paleontological remains to maritime built environment, graves, and in our case, um, any heritage object. Now, specifically what, what we do is to issue permits four people wanting to export various items out of the country and we then decide you know whether or not to issue a permit and allow the export or not
2: that's kwan Handik of the south african heritage resource agency on the line talking to jane rabutata with sandy is standing by with your economics news
0: Good evening. Thanks, Amanda. South Africa's Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba has described the slow growth of the country's economy as a matter of concern for all South Africans. Gigaba delivered his medium-term budget policy statement in Parliament. He says the country faces its biggest tax revenue shortfall since 2009 as well as a rising debt-to-GDP ratio, which is currently over 54%.
10: The major response to the revenue shortfall should be let's grow the economy because the only way you are going to be able to recover 50.8 billion rand is not by cutting expenditure or raising taxes it is by Um, uh, addressing the structural reforms in the economy, resolving the uncertainties surrounding um, state-owned companies, the telecommunications spectrum allocation and and broadband issues, as well as resolving the mining issues, implementing some of the fiscal issues, including the, the reform of the procurement programs of government
0: Meanwhile, there's been muted reaction from economists and the business community to GIGABA's first medium-term budget policy statement. The economists say the market had not expected GIGABA to make serious pronouncements on how and where government was going to get funds to resuscitate the economy and reform SOEs. Economist Lumki Lemondi.
14: Our expectations were that not much is going to come out of the budget. Given the fact that the control of the treasury now rests with the presidency, so therefore President Zuma has got more to say about what goes into the budget than Minister of Finance. The under-recovery, the amount that has not been collected in our budget, estimated to about 50.8 billion. That possibility was there, and really, um, around supporting state-owned companies also we're not surprised.
0: Algeria will delay the, delay the start of a uh, southern Tawat gas field up until the first quarter of 2018. Tawad is expected to come online in the first quarter of 2018. It is one of the five gas fields Algeria has been developing. Algeria plans to boost annual gas production to 95 billion cubic metres, of which 42 billion will be for domestic and 53 billion for exports. In the gas project, Sonatrek holds a 55% uh, share and French Engie, 45%. Sona which is Algeria's cash cow and a major gas supplier to Europe, has been shaken by corruption scandals, the frequent departure of top executives, and bureaucratic inefficiencies that have hindered development of new oil fields. Unilever Nigeria's $187 million US dollar rights issue was 120% subscribed last week. The local subsidiary of Anglo-Dutch consumer goods group Unilever sold 14 new shares for every 27 held at 3 cents per share. The company, which is 60% owned by Unilever, says uh, four shareholders applied for 50 million shares or more during the offer. The Nigerian firm wants uh, the proceeds of the sale to pay off around $120 million in loans and to give it some flexibility in the event of a further weakness in the Naira's exchange rate. The world's largest payment network operator, Visa, has reported an 11% increase in the fourth quarter, driven by its purchase of Visa Europe, and as more people made payments using its network, net income rose to 2.4 billion U.S. dollars in the quarter, ended September 30th from 1.93 billion dollars a year ago. Visa shares were up 1.4 percent in pre-market trading, the company's total operating revenue, jumping 14 percent to 4.86 billion dollars, reflecting growth in payments, volume and processed transactions. Financial indicators now, the US dollar at uh, 13.72 South African rands, 10.28 Botswana Pula and 9.8 Zambin Kwacha, also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,273, platinum $915 per fine ounce, brand crude oil at $58.40 per barrel. That's how it's looking.
2: Thank you, Isani, It's time now for our sports news with Musibudi Makura.
4: Good evening, sports fans. I am Osibu Di Makura with the latest sports news at the SAWAM. Starting off with athletics news, reigning European 5,000-meter champion, Elas FIFA, has been arrested in Barcelona on Wednesday as part of a doping probe. Sources of the investigations have confirmed that FIFA, born in Morocco, but who has represented Spain since 2015, was arrested at his home on Wednesday morning. The 28-year-old is just one of a number of arrests being carried out in operations for crimes against public health and the use of medications with great danger to health, said a statement from the Catalan High Court of Justice. Now, the court also confirmed that the operation carried out on Wednesday began with a police investigation back in June. FIFA took advantage of Morfara's absence to claim European gold at the 2016 European Championships in Amsterdam. On to football news, the inspection of facilities in Zambia for the upcoming Kosafa Under-20 Men's Tournament began today and will conclude tomorrow on Thursday. Now, the tournament will be held from the 6th up until the 16th of December in Zambia. Our Zambian-based correspondent, Namuchana Chana Lekezo, has more details.
8: The it's uh, supposed to be in today. Actually, they arrived by midday. This is according to the information that is coming in from the Football
5: Association of Zambia as far communications manager, Mr. Desmond Katongo. He said this team will be led, will be led by to the storms from Kosafa. And the main missing here is that they just come and inspect the two stadiums and and the accommodation. But so far, what has happened is that uh, the local organizing committee, they went to Kitwe, which is the town where these games will be held in December. It was led by... uh, a fan committee member, Dr. in Kamungo, they toured the Nkana Stadium. Uh, they also had an opportunity not to tour Asha Davis Stadium because these two stadiums are the ones that will be used not to host, to host the KOSAPA under-15 Games.
4: On to Tennis News. World number 4, Marin Klilic and Bulgarian Gigro Dimitrov have sealed their spots in next month's ATP Finals, leaving two spots still up for grabs in the season-ending tournament in London. Now, the duo join World number 1, Rafael Nadal, Swiss ace Roger Federer, Germany's Alexander Zverev, as well as Austrian Dominic Thiem in the Elite 8 Manfield after Sam Querrey lost his first round match at the Vienna Open on Tuesday. Now, Croatian Klich won the Istanbul Open back in May and reached the finals at Wimbledon and the Queen's Club to help him earn a spot in the ATP Finals for a third time, having previously competed back in 2014 as well as 2016. Dimitrov's first ATP 1000 title at the Cincinnati Open back in August and his Sofia Open and Brisbane International Triumphs helped the 26-year-old become the first Bulgarian to qualify for the ATP Finals. While Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic and Stanislas Varyenka all are with injuries, Belgian David Gouffron as well as Spaniard Pablo Ganero Busta are favourites to grab the remaining spots at the event that takes place from the 12th up until the 19th of November. And finally in boxing news, Anthony Joshua has refused to rule out the prospect of a world heavyweight title clash with British um, rival Tyson Fury. Now Fury has not fought since beating Vladimir Klitschko to win the IBF, the WBA and the WBO titles back in December 2015 after being handed a drugs ban and then being stripped of his license by the British Boxing Board of Control. Now earlier this month the 29-year-old Fury said he would not reapply um, uh, to the British Boxing Board for control for the right to fight again, further reducing the chances of a return. But Joshua, who defends his IBF and WBA titles against late replacement Carlos Takem in Cardiff on Saturday, has left the door open to fight Fury. while those are sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
1: Africa Digest.
2: 1755, Central African Time. Let's do a quick recap of our top stories. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has begun his four-day visit to the Central African Republic, where sectarian violence has spread in recent months and human rights groups from South Africa and around the world are calling on the Tanzanian government to release their colleagues who are being held in detention in that country. And that wraps up Africa Digest this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer, Lebu Musou, technical producer, Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. You can send us your comments on the show to info at channelafrica.org or you can send an SMS to plus 27823325905. And taking us to the top of the hour is a song by Dunogwe titled African Child Bambelela. If it doesn't harm you, it is good. If it doesn't harm others, it is good. We are talking
7: about doing good for the sake of goodness. Bambelela, hold on to what is good if you...